0: Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJWatson. And on this month's Paper Scraps, we'll be answering your TV writing questions about non-adult animation, reverse engineering TV shows, and cultural references. Plus, we'll be talking about the latest TV writing news, including broadcast comedies under threat and controversial release schedule. So let's get to it.
1: All right, and First up, some Paper Team news. As we mentioned previously, we are planning on doing an online mixer in early October, so we now have the full details of that for you. It will be taking place on Saturday, October 3rd, starting at 6 p.m. PST, and you can log into that via the Zoom link by going to paperteam.co slash online mixer for that link.
0: It's all one word, online mixer. It's a bit experimental. Obviously, we haven't done a, an online mixer or Zoom mixer before, but the idea is that as the mixer grows, we'll do a little breakout rooms so people can chat. And if you come early, we will be obviously there to answer your questions if uh, you have any thoughts about, not just the podcast, but any topics of conversations that you want to have as we get started on the mixer. So I guess it's kind of like a first-come-first-serve basis in terms of getting a uh, FaceTime with us, I suppose.
1: Yeah, at this point, we're honestly not sure. If a ton of people are going to show up because it's all online and all of our amazing listeners from all over the world can finally join us rather than just those living in LA, or if nobody's going to join because we're all sick of being on video calls for most of the (laughs) the day during work or otherwise. So we'll see, we'll roll the dice and hopefully we'll see some of you guys there and can talk then.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So just a reminder, that's at paperteam.co slash online mixer, all one word on Saturday, October 3rd, uh, this Saturday. Uh, starting at 6pm Pacific time. So we'll see you there. And uh, moving on to our Patreon supporters, because we could not do this podcast without our Patreon supporters. So we really, really want to thank all of them, especially our new Patreon supporters, including Laurel, Leanne, Tobias,
1: Jonathan, Eli, and Sean. Thank you all so, so much for your support and your contributions literally is what makes the podcast run, especially during these fraught covert times when, uh, we can't really do advertising or partnerships or that kind of thing. So you are the wind beneath our wings. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone else would like to join the Patreon to get all the awesome benefits, like the exclusive paper patron episodes, cheat sheets, uh, mentorship updates, and all that kind of thing, you can join and help support the podcast at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.
0: And it's actually thanks to our listeners and supporters like you that we were just able to break back-to-back Our all time monthly download record because uh, in July of this year, July 2020 was our most downloaded month of all time. And now August 2020 surpassed it as the new most downloaded month of all time. So, really, thank you so much. We're planning or hoping rather uh, to break 300,000 downloads by the end of this year. And uh, really, we could not even exist without all our supporters. So, thank you.
1: Absolutely. It's nice to know that we have more people tuning in and not less. So, obviously, we must be doing something right.
0: (laughs) Yes. And on that note, let's also mention a couple of uh, Twitter shoutouts that we got.
1: Uh, Yeah, the first one was from Jimmy Wynn, former uh, guest of the podcast. And he said, check out the latest episode of Paper Team, a great weekly television writing podcast by TV calling and N.J. Watson, as uh, director Charles Murrow's is the guest this week talking filmmaking and the Game Master doc. And then another reply to that was from Kristen Strass who said, Charles Mraz, so fun to relive our epic, wacky, wacky West battle. I'm thinking low-budget spinoff doc just on this, mostly because I won. Hashtag the game within the game. So thanks to those folks for shouting out on Twitter, and uh, everyone should go check out Game Master, the documentary. It's a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: All right, let's get into your own TV writing questions and uh, some topics about the craft that we wanted to discuss. And first up is a question by Cassidy Richards, who sent us this email saying, hello, my name is Cassidy, and in my great search for actual tips from actual TV writers on TV writing and not just suggestions from the mouths of old fuddy-duddy professors who only watch Golden Girls on repeat, I found your blog and your podcast. There's so much amazing information in here that is really invaluable in ways I am sure many people have already experienced. The rest of you. My question is, do you have any resources, references, or information surrounding writing for and pitching non-adult animated series? My sister and I are working on a show together where the target audience would primarily be middle and high school age viewers. I'm interested to know if it is even worth specing something like Gravity Falls or Adventure Time, or if it's better to just prepare my spec pilot and stick with specing live action shows instead. Thank you for your time and your dedication to the craft and the people who share it with you. Yeah, well, thanks
1: for that email, Cassidy. I always love fielding questions about animation writing, so happy to uh, chime in on this one. So to answer a couple of points in your question, the last one that you brought up in terms of is it worth the speccing an animated series, especially one for uh, kids instead of uh, live action specs, it really just depends entirely on what your goal is. If you want to be entering the network fellowships, most of those accept live action and some accept animation. A lot of it's adult animation, unless you're looking at something like Nickelodeon or the new universal kids animation sort of fellowship uh, that are definitely taking specs of kids animated TV shows. So you might find that a live action spec goes a little bit further if that's your goal. But if you also want to really write for animation and kids animation, then it would absolutely help you to have a spec of one of those shows as well in your arsenal.
0: Yeah. And to that point, I mean, I feel like a lot of it essentially comes down to matching the samples that you want to work on versus the shows that you want to work on. So totally speaking, especially if you're a to write non-adult animated series like uh, Gravity Falls or Adventure Time, I feel like it might be a bit tougher to find a sort of a live action show that you can spec that matches that tone. So like Nick said, I would really look at uh, the fellowship programs uh, and sort of where they fall, especially something like the Nickelodeon writing program, which is probably one of the better bets uh, for you to look into sort of their list of shows and what they're looking for. Uh, I definitely recommend the episode that we did earlier this year with the head of the program, and that was PT 179. So that's a great resource in terms of digging into what they're actually looking for, because honestly, the Nick program sounds, a lot like what you're looking for in terms of a writing program that caters to non-adult animated series. And again, just to go back to sort of the purpose of it, the reason why you want to write a spec outside of the fellowship is to essentially train your writing muscles into writing the kind of content that you do want to write and to reverse engineer a little bit those shows and understand the process and the format and the structure and so forth. So a live action show isn't necessarily going to get you there as opposed to specking a TV show that's more akin to the kind of pilot or series that you want to work on. So that's another thing to consider.
1: Yeah, another thing I'll add is that it's actually somewhat more common in the kids' animation and preschool animation space for specs to be used as samples. A lot of the time, it is actually episodes that people have written freelance for those shows that are effectively specs, but they were paid to do them for the show because it's more of a freelance model in kids' animation than a, a traditional writers' room model. So in that same way, it's helpful for aspiring animation writers in that space to have specs of existing animated kids' TV shows, especially when you're writing and targeting a particular audience, whether that's kids six to 11 or preschool, like zero to five kind of thing. They really want to see that you understand that age range, and that demographic, and you can write to that. And then one last thing uh, that I will say there is in terms of your original pilot, you were talking about working on, you mentioned kind of the audience being more of like middle and high school aged viewers. It's interesting because that's kind of like a weird no man's land in between traditional age demographics. You've got you know preschool zero to five, you've got kids, six to 11, and then you have adult. And so everything from, you know, that whole teenage space isn't really a traditionally targeted demographic when it comes to formats. Um, you know, perhaps in live action, you would consider some of the YA shows. Uh, a lot of the CW shows might appeal to early twenties and teens and that sort of thing. So that could be the closest to that. But in terms of animation, the gap is between six to 11 and adult. There's no kind of like high school age range that people are aiming at because there's a lot of crossover viewership between, you know, shows like Gravity, falls and adventure time that are six to elevens that adults can enjoy too and teenagers and high schoolers and then adult shows you know like the simpsons and whatever the teenagers can enjoy too but there's really nothing that's being specifically targeted at that space in the middle in a formal way in the animation world
0: All right, next up is a little thread that I found on Reddit, and a specific question in particular that caught my eye, especially now that we just mentioned the specs and so forth, in regards to reverse engineering and studying screenplays, because a lot has been made, including on our podcast, about sort of reverse engineering existing shows, existing episodes, existing movies, and so forth, to really get a grasp of the format, the structure, essentially how a show or movie works, and educating yourself that way way. And so I want to chat a little bit about our own methods and practices in terms of what has helped us in our own writing, in terms of uh, studying the greats, whether that's a great show, a great episode, a great movie, whatever the case may be, a great script, and uh, what tools we've uh, used to do that. So let me ask you, Nick, have you ever reverse engineered a script before? And uh, what are some of the things that you found useful in doing that? Yeah, definitely.
1: So I think there's two main Times when you're likely to reverse engineer a script in this way, aside from just, you know, for general learning purposes. One would be when you're trying to write a spec episode of that, which, you know, I've done for fellowships and whatever. And the other one is actually when you are being brought on to write for a show, whether that's as a staff writer or a freelancer, you really need to take all the material that they have existing on the show and absorb that and read the existing scripts that are there, whether it's just the pilot script or whether it's the first season of scripts and episodes of scripts and be able to reverse engineer it so that you can be a seamless part of that machine and be able to to uh, tell the same stories in the same tone and the same voice as the existing showrunner and writers room can. So I guess this might seem obvious, but the first thing that you want to do is just read and watch and absorb whatever particular materials you have around the show that when you're reverse engineering it, you want to go through and watch it once, twice, three times, you know, probably a number of times, because I think the first time you watch something, you're only really paying attention to the big beats of the story, and you're watching it on an entertainment level, and then you want to be able to re-watch or reread it again uh, with a specific eye to the technical stuff in terms of, you know, the characters' voices, in terms of the structure of each of the stories, and when it cuts, uh, the act breaks, all of that kind of thing. So it's really, really important to just absorb as much of it as you can and understand it on both an implicit level and then on a more active level where you are deconstructing the craft that's gone into it.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. I will also mention a few other things. One is, especially when you're watching a show, it's most helpful to have that script with you. And that's something I'll uh, go back to in a moment, but I can't really underscore enough the importance of putting side to side the script compared to what is actually the output because a produced show or movie isn't exactly the same thing as the script that you're reading. Maybe the production draft is going to be the closest to it, but it's not quite there because obviously the show has not been shot yet and the editing hasn't even happened yet so it's important to understand the differences and to that idea especially when you are starting on a show that already has a baggage and history in terms of previous episodes produced and so forth it's equally important in my mind to read the various drafts of those scripts of those episodes so you can understand the evolution of those scripts and understand A, what kind of notes the network and studios are giving, but also B, how does the showrunner rewrite or correct or edit uh, that person's script and modify it to fit their own voice? And so that way you can really understand and dig deeper in terms of that writer's strength, that writer's voice, and really understand, like uh, Nick said, uh, the best way for you to become, I don't want to say a cog in the machine, but uh, at least a part of that ensemble. And another thing I'll mention on that idea is, Nick, you mentioned the fact that one reason to reverse engineer is to do specs. Another is sort of to understand professionally the best way to match the showrunner's voice. I will also mention the third way would be inspiration, especially if you're writing something like a spec pilot or a feature or something like that. Personally, I've definitely gone back to shows and movies I really love that are tonally similar or in the same genres as uh, something that I'm currently writing or want to write to really understand the mechanics, uh, both narratively and structurally, of how they achieve what they achieve. achieved, especially if you are doing sort of a pure piece on a specific era and uh, you want to match the tone and voice of a specific show or movie or whatever it is, I do believe it is important to get in the rhythm uh, in terms of your own writing without necessarily cross-pollinating, because that's another risk that uh, you need to watch out for is sort of burying yourself in research and, and watching and reading all this stuff and essentially ending up with a poor imitation when you're writing your script of those other products. So that's another thing to watch out for in terms of if you're going to do research and you're going to reverse engineer content, definitely do that on the onset, but I would definitely advise against sort of uh, bearing yourself in that research.
1: Yeah. One thing I like to do when I'm reading and familiarizing myself with a show is take a lot of really detailed notes about anything and everything. I like to basically write my own one paragraph summaries of each episode. So for example, maybe you're coming onto season two of a show and you're analyzing all of the first season so you can understand how to write it. I'll go through and read each of the scripts, watch each of the episodes and then uh, yeah, write my own summary of it so that I understand it in my terms and I understand what the key story beats of each one was, not only for my own reference in terms of the, the story and the continuity, but just kind of getting a sense of how those beats tend to play out and then taking notes on everything down to How exactly they spell the particular location. You know, it's the character's house. Is it uh, Sarah's home? Is it Sarah's house? Is it like 922 Evergreen Street? You know, that kind of thing. Even those little formatting things are all going to help you really nail exactly how you're going to write this script. Taking notes on the tone. You know, do they use a lot of witty jokes? Is there a lot of satirical references, meta humor, that kind of thing? Just anything and everything like that can really, really help that you pull out and notice what makes this show different from all the other shows. And what do I need to make sure I'm putting into my thing? so that I understand the DNA of this show.
0: Yeah, it's actually a great point, especially in the case of whether you're doing a spec script or you want to sort of match the showrunner's voice on a show that you're getting staffed on. A lot of those nuances, a lot of the details that make that show, a particular show, are in the details of the script. They're not necessarily macro elements that, uh, obviously, you're going to be spending a lot of time figuring out the structure and if it's like a five-act or four-act or whatever, and uh, where they land each uh, cliffhangers and so forth, but in terms of what will really make you uh, gel well with the showrunner, with the show and so forth, a lot of it does come down to those details that aren't necessarily obvious. And uh, we've talked a lot about sort of researching the structure of shows and so forth, but like uh, Nick mentioned, in terms of the tone and the way the slug lines are written, a lot of those details really make a difference on the page. And so if you're going to be deconstructing a screenplay or deconstructing a script or an episode, I would definitely echo that sentiment of look at the details of each of the way a specific character speaks, the way a specific room is described, how detailed are those descriptions or are they more minimalistic? All those little elements will definitely help you shape your own writing to best fit the Shoner's voice.
1: Yeah, exactly. Look at how many uh, action lines typically take up, or is it very well spaced out? And it's only ever one or two lines, or do they do really big chunks of heavily descriptive action? You know, How much are they leaving up to, say, the director's uh, imagination as opposed to putting it down on the page? And also even just little things like when do they italicize or underline or bold? It's important uh, to kind of get that stuff down. Obviously, it's not the end of the world because a script coordinator or something could fix that up, but you really, really want to imitate it as much as possible. And it also just all helps get that the idea of the style and the emphasis of each moment in your head.
0: Yeah, and even just on a personal level to learn and improve your craft, it's always interesting to look at, and this is something we've talked about, I think last year where uh, all the episodes are blurred now in my mind after almost 200 episodes. But at some point in time in the past, we talked about editorializing your prose and your script. And I feel like that's another Uh, element to look at in those uh, scripts that you are reverse engineering is to get inspired by the way the author speaks through those words or if they're holding back. That's another element that personally I've definitely engaged with more as time goes on. The more scripts I read, the more it's obvious, the cookie cutter way of writing something as opposed to that author's voice and that writer's voice. And so that's another big element to watch out for in your own writing and when you are reverse engineering other people's scripts. And on that note, since I did mention the appeal of having a script next to the content produced. I will mention a little browser extension. This is brand new. It was posted on the screenwriting subreddit and it's called Screenplay Subs and it's available at screenplaysubs.com. And it's a Firefox slash Chrome extension that adds to Netflix that feature film script next to it. So I think right now they only have a couple of movies as demos like The Social Network and Scott Pilgrim and I think Inception and more and more are being added, but it's essentially way of watching a movie with the script next to it synced. Now, obviously this is not a TV yet, but I really find that uh, idea very appealing. So I did want to give the browser extension a shout out because it's brand new and I think they need a lot of feedback. And so I'm really appreciative that something like that exists currently.
1: Yeah, that sounds super interesting. I'll have to check that one out. And the next topic of discussion that we wanted to bring up was a tweet that kind of took Twitter by storm uh, briefly. And it was from a, a showrunner level writer who said he was going on a middle-aged showrunner rant and said, I work with a ton of younger writers, almost universally. They are completely ignorant of television history. They've never seen the Dick Van Dyke show or the Honeymooners or I Love Lucy or All in the Family or The Odd Couple, et cetera, et cetera. And so essentially he was airing out his frustrations that perhaps the current generation of TV writers are not as... um television literate of the the history of um, comedy and sitcoms or or whatever that happens to be. And I guess it wasn't universally received well by everybody. um, So there was some controversy around uh, that statement.
0: Yeah, it, it was a surprising to see uh, how uh, hot that topic became. Because personally, my take on this is sort of I'm in both boats at once. Uh, because on one hand, I have met a lot of people. Uh, and it doesn't have to be younger writers, just writers in general that want to be TV writers who are unfamiliar with not just television history, but essentially iconic shows. And do you need to have watched every episode of The Sopranos to be a good TV drama writer? No, of course not. But I would argue that you should be aware of the existence of something like The Wire and understand why The Wire is considered one of the best pieces of television history to be a good or better or an amazing TV writer. Because knowing an awareness of that history that comes before you only informs you as a writer in the same way that you are inspired by the shows and the references that you have as you grow up. And we do want to keep, obviously, a diverse amount of voices and experiences, but that doesn't preclude someone from being aware of that history. And so personally, I'm not quite uh, all a like he is uh, about uh, some of those older shows, but just generally speaking, I do feel it is important, uh, whether you're a drama writer or a comedy writer, to at least be aware of those, uh, not necessarily references, but at least the history of those shows and understand why they are considered classics and others may not be.
1: Yeah, I feel similarly to you, Alex. I'm kind of in two minds about it. You know, on the one hand, I think it's important, um, you know, not even television history, but just in general to absorb a lot of media and television if you want to be a writer so that you're understanding perhaps even more so the more recent stuff that's coming out so you understand the landscape. But, you know, like you said, having uh, an idea of these iconic shows and what they brought uh, is super important. And I myself go out of my way to catch up on, you know, long running sitcoms that I've never seen before, that kind of thing, so that I can familiarize myself at the same time, I also understand the other side of this, where if everyone is using the exact same cultural references, and it's a room full of people who are the same age, who grew up in the same country, uh, who all watch the same shows, you know, and they're all informing that with their humor and their storytelling style, I think you do kind of lose a little something there. And to that point, another one of our previous guests, James Hamilton, commented on this post on Twitter saying, if everyone's working off of the same cultural references, it limits what your team can bring to the table. Uh, he loves when his writing team can reference things that he's never seen and think of Things that he wouldn't have thought of. And, you know, further to his point and, and mine as well, your experience too, Alex, coming from different cultures we all had different references. There are a lot of like random classic American TV shows that just never aired in Australia or weren't available to me on whatever channels I had when I was growing up. So something like Fuller House or Saved by the Bell or whatever was just like not a part of my cultural upbringing. And so to everybody else here, it's this clear cultural touchstone. And to to others of us who grew up in different places around the world, it's not necessarily. And I don't think that's necessarily a weakness. I think that it helps bring in a different perspective and other views and ideas that deceased people might not have. Have.
0: Yeah, definitely, and to that point, I mean, I feel like there is a difference between not knowing a reference and not knowing the history. Uh, so, uh, in the the James Hamilton thread, he mentions the Simpsons and how in his writers' room, everybody had watched the Simpsons, and so it was constantly quoted. In another writers' room, uh, he was one of the only few people, or maybe the only person, who had watched the Simpsons to such an extent that he could get the references. And to me, that's different than you know being aware of the Simpsons as a thing. So what I mean by that is obviously we all should be watching different things and maybe some of those things overlap. And so we can sort of have a dialogue about references in the context of a writer's room. And so at least there's a bit of a shorthand there, but to me, that's different from just as a TV art or as an artist, essentially knowing the history that comes before you. So for example, if you are working on, let's say a YA TV show or a show that takes place in a high school that involves some fantasy elements, it would really behoove you to have watched and be aware of what Buffy and Angel are. Not necessarily because you need to watch it to be a good writer, but just because the viewers of the show that you are working on will be more than likely be familiar with the Angel and Buffy. That's the kind of show that they love to watch. And that's why they want to watch the show that you are going to be working on. And so there's a lot of those overlaps that it's more about being aware of the history that comes before you. So you don't necessarily repeat it Or conversely, you may want to lean into it and sort of do sort of the meta thing or uh, subvert expectations, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the other thing about the take of, oh, well, you don't want everybody to have watched the same thing because then they'll just be sort of this big blob of the same references. Well, my thinking is uh, I believe it would be the opposite because let's say you are a 40 year old or 50 year old white male and you're in the same room as, you know, like a 25 year old African American woman. And let's say you both watch the same show right like let's say you both watched friends well you might have completely different takes on friends and not just because of the nostalgia of it one person may have nostalgia over it and the other may not but even in terms of the content and awareness of social issues, diversity topics, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. There's, there's an infinite array of issues that us as people are going to be watching a show differently than someone else. And so, to me, that's part of the reason why I do feel it is important for people to be aware of the history. And it's not just because this is this sort of monolithic block of art that you need to revere. It's more so be aware of this history, so maybe you can disagree with it, maybe you can critique it in a way that nobody else before you has, and you can bring that informed opinion into the writer's room as opposed to just uh, not getting the reference and not understanding what the conversation is about.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point and a a good way of looking at it. And it's, it's interesting you bring up sort of Buffy because I find that this kind of thing really is heightened in genre rooms and TV shows, especially on final space. It was really important for us all to have some common sci-fi references that we could uh, talk about when it came to episode ideas of a, so that we didn't just blindly copy them and repeat, you know, a Star Trek episode or whatever, but also be so that we could uh, draw homage from them and honor them in some ways and kind of uh, weave those elements in, in a way that is, is referential, but still original. So I definitely understand what you're saying there. And I think when it comes to specific genres that have these kind of tropes and stuff, it is really important to understand what has been done before so that you know how you can subvert that and how you can build on that for the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of a uh, personal experience, I've definitely been in rooms that did not get those references <laughs> that I was making. And when you're pitching something, and you're essentially either subverting a trope or calling back to another show, or movie, or what have you, and you're sort of hoping and banking on the other person getting that shorthand reference, and they don't get it, that completely short circuits your entire pitch. I mean, obviously you can reframe it, but it's essentially akin to explaining the joke. It's like I didn't get the joke. Well, okay, let me explain to you why this joke. I was was making was funny as opposed to telling the joke and the other person laughs. So I compare it to that way where it's it can be a bit frustrating when you're not necessarily sharing or hoping that the other person understands those references. But when you're pitching something in the room, a lot of it does come down to sort of the vibe of it. All right, let's look at some of the latest TV writing news, and one of the big sort of semi-controversy, I suppose, is regarding The Boys Season 2 release schedule.
1: Yeah, so uh, essentially what happened here was that they decided to drop the first three episodes of season two of The Boys on Amazon and then start releasing on a weekly schedule after that, which, you know, is sort of somewhere in between (laughs) the two previous TV models that have been really popular, which are a straight up weekly release schedule and dumping all of the episodes of the season at once and allowing people to binge through at their own thing. So now they're trying to find this middle ground where perhaps they drop enough episodes to get people interested and invested and then uh, be able to have them keep watching week after week so that it doesn't Just get binged all in a week or two and then disappear from the cultural conversation.
0: Yeah. I mean, what was especially interesting about this is that the airing schedule did not come from Amazon, but from the creatives themselves. I mean, Kripke mentioned this in an interview with Collider where he outright said, for the record, this didn't come from Amazon, it came from the producers. We're the ones who pitched this to them. A lot of people over there were actually reluctant because it was a new idea or they uh, didn't want to do it that often. And we really wanted it. And Amazon ended up agreeing that they would give it a try. And what is even more interesting is that there's now been a huge backlash from fans with this release schedule. Some fans were even uh, review bombing the show because of this release schedule which to me is surreal because if you are actually begging for a show to be released more often because you're salivating at the idea of watching it, why would you bomb the show in terms of reviews so then it would probably get cancelled? It's completely counterproductive (laughs) to what you're trying to do, which if you're an actual fan of the show, why would you review bomb it. I I really don't get it. Yeah, I
1: don't understand that logic either. I think that sometimes audiences are a little bit entitled about their content and the way that they they want to do it. And, you know, I think that it's hard to please everybody if they had gone with a traditional binge model release, then there would have been some people who perhaps skipped over it because they didn't have the time to binge everything and they didn't want to be behind on the conversation. So like, I'm just not even going to bother with this show. And if they did a weekly release schedule, there'd be some people who uh, wouldn't want to watch it until it was all done anyway. You know, so like it's, it's really hard to like please everybody in this situation. And I think that there's always room for experimentation and growth and to see if this works, because, you know, you and I, Alex, have talked in previous episodes about the benefits of binge versus weekly and how, you know, they each have their own pluses and minuses. So I I don't really fault the producers of The Boys for trying something different and trying to see if they can strike the right balance between those two models
0: absolutely. And in this case, especially it was sort of marrying the release schedule to the production schedule. It was almost like a half network where on a network schedule, you release it weekly because you want to marry it to the production schedule. Whereas on a more classic OTT schedule, the development cycle is such and production cycle is such that everything is essentially produced before the first episode even drops. And that's why Netflix, for example, drops everything at once. And in this case, they were apparently three quarters of the way through post production. And so that led to that decision of releasing it about, it's almost like a half measure of let's do three episodes, but then also do it weekly. And I mean, it is hard to break through sort of the conversation when you're doing either a weekly show or a single drop. So I, I can't really blame the producers for wanting to try this, especially to keep the conversation going. I mean, I'm still puzzled and, and honestly shocked at the backfire it got uh, just based on the release schedule. I really feel like it's a very bizarre sort of entitlement. Yeah, and I think you're seeing it more
1: and more at the networks that they're trying to do these kind of like episode drops that might be a quarter of a season or a half a season of traditional content just so that they can give people a bunch of episodes to digest and then have something new for them to look forward to in a couple of months. And some people really enjoy that and some people hate it because they want to watch it all at once. But, you know, I think it works better for the streamers in terms of having new stuff to look forward to all the time because it's so easy for an entire season of, of content to get lost after the first week or two when everyone binges it. And the other thing I'll say is that uh, unfortunately, Unfortunately, I think the boys kind of caught the short end of the stick on this because it's only eight episodes in the season. So it's like, you can't really drop eight than eight or, you know, that kind of thing you've really don't have that many episodes to play with in terms of how much you're dropping at a particular time.
0: Yeah, and perhaps that is why the audience had such a a strong uh, feedback on this, because each episode does feel like, oh, you should be dropping the whole season at once, because audiences now have been trained to expect that kind of release schedule, whereas if you are doing a weekly schedule on Amazon, which is an OTT, it does feel like or appear to be as if you're milking the show. Uh, And so I don't necessarily think that's uh, what Amazon or the producers expected it to appear as, but that's definitely how audiences uh, read it as. And so I think that's part of why the backlash happened and is such a strong backlash. And uh, on that note, our next topic of conversation is an article by uh, Nelly Andriva on Deadline, where uh, essentially she mentioned how the network comedy's future. Is threatened by outdated broadcast business model, and in short, a lot of studios, including Sony, which is behind the Goldbergs, have or are moving away to selling broadcast comedies in the current financial model. And some studios and more independent production companies have begun to independently review whether or not they should sell broadcast comedies, or if they are, they're doing it sort of like solo, as opposed to attaching themselves to a network or a studio or something like that. There's definitely a big shift in terms of the way broadcast comedies may live in the future this has
1: been kind of a long time coming traditional networks that comes have always been based off of this 100 episodes for streaming and syndication kind of model and now that more and more of that is going away and we're seeing different experimentation with releases and second windows and you know parallel kind of streaming with stuff on live tv and then being available on say hulu the next day and that kind of thing i think it was inevitable that something had to change when it came to these kind of shows and how broadcast operated it was just a matter of when
0: yeah uh, another thing to keep in mind is that those 100 plus episode shows have increasing costs in terms of uh, second, third, fourth, fifth window, and so forth, especially now in the era where all the OTTs are trying to differentiate themselves, as we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, where you know people want to watch CBSL Access because they have the Big Bang Theory, or people want to watch Peacock because they have the Office and so forth. And so that's a huge differentiator between those OTTs. And looking at the podcast model, it doesn't make sense for the networks, for the linear networks to partake in this if they're going to be losing that commodity, if they're going to be losing that uh, content to some other OTT down the line. And so it doesn't really make sense to produce something if you're not going to reap the benefit of it long-term. And so a lot of the structure and the format, not just in terms of the content and the narrative, but in terms of the meta format of the business model itself has shifted to such a dramatic degree that it doesn't make sense economically for uh, those companies or the studios to really look at the classic broadcast model, as opposed to selling it to o- OTTs or other partners moving on.
1: Yeah. And we've talked about this again and again, even as recently in our episode, we talked about Mike Scher and the good place and how, you know, this has all been changing. But I can't help but shake the feeling that we are going to be losing something in there being no incentive to produce. 10 seasons of an iconic classic comedy. Like when are we ever going to get the next office or the next parks and rec? If the only thing that anyone wants to buy is two seasons on a streaming service and then done, we're going to be missing the next generation of, uh, amazing comedies and I don't think they're going to be able to have that same space to live and breathe and, and grow anymore and I think that the, we're definitely going to be losing something from the cultural conversation with that.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree and I will even go further as to say that this is something uh, we mentioned uh, I don't know like a year ago now at this point but to me it's akin to those more broadcast procedurals like Law and Order where you can envision it being sort of created uh, for linear TV and that's uh, very popular for OTTs but it's harder to imagine in. A sort of a procedural type show that runs five seasons on an OTT. I think that's where, whether we're talking about a comedy or drama, I think that's where the potential issue lies. Is OTTs intrinsically are not looking for something that goes deep; they're just looking for something that goes wide with many as many shows as possible. And so, it's not really an incentive for them to produce sort of those shows like The Office or Friends that are going to last a very long time because they can't really bank on it being appointment programming as opposed to what's the show that that. that is going to bring the most amount of subscribers to our platform. And so I think it is actually a missed opportunity because I do feel in the future, you could see a hybrid version of it where it is sort of a broadcasty type comedy that can also run long, but it is distributed through the OTT. That would be a sort of a format or at least a a show that I think banking on the fact that a lot of uh, subscribers are brought to this platform, it would make a lot of sense to create that sort of show.
1: The next piece of uh, TV news that you might want to know about is there's been a lot of controversy regarding uh, employment laws that came into California over the last year or two. Uh, One in particular called AB 5. You might have seen a lot of stuff about this. Essentially, I believe the intention of the law was to try to protect people who were being incorrectly classified as independent contractors in 1099s when they were actually employees and should have had full time protections and offered health care and all that sort of thing. But unfortunately, this law was kind of like too wide reaching and broad, and it ended up hitting a lot of people whose uh, work model is freelance, whether that's writers, photographers, musicians, you know, even rideshare drivers for Uber and, and Lyft. These are people who are genuinely real independent contractors whose business model for the businesses they work for couldn't really continue to exist if they had to be treated as employees. Uh, so after a lot of feedback, Governor Newsom in California has attempted to uh, introduce a, an amendment or a new law that will try to deal with some of that in terms of eliminating this 35 submission app for people like freelance writers and photographers people like translators music industry workers and all that kind of thing you know it kind of reached a point where companies that were yeah farming out freelance articles even for reviewing a tv show every week or whatever once they hit 35 they would have had to hire them as an employee and then they would just stop using them and hire a new freelancer so it ended up being much much worse for people so it's good to see that they're taking some efforts towards fixing this now
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm all for sort of regulating, especially when it comes to like freelance models and so forth. It's not as much about like the freelancers themselves. It's more about the people that hire the freelancers and the sort of the contractors, because the Uber model is an example of essentially they are all employees except for the name, right? And so they're not getting any of the benefits of being an employee. That's in essence what the issue is. I mean, we'll see on the ballot because obviously there's Prop 22 that is on the ballot over here in November. Overall, I do feel it is important to legislate some of it, not necessarily to tie down freelancers because I feel like the burden should not be on the people, on the freelancers, it should be on the contractors and the people that employ because they're the ones dealing with sort of the tax burden, or well, at least they should be. Obviously, if you're a freelancer in America, it's a bit of a different model, but or at least in California. But nonetheless, I'm at least happy on some level that they're trying to legislate a lot of that issue and then trying to put into law what it means to really be a freelancer. But at the same time, it is kind of a scary a prospect that a lot of it, usually those kinds of laws put the burden much more on the freelancer and the employee rather than the employer, which to me is what is potentially worrying.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's unfortunate because there were good reasons to try to get people these kind of protections. It was just poorly executed. And now I think you know, you're know you less likely to end up with the, the good positive result that you wanted of protecting more people just because now it has such an overall negative image in the eyes of people. So I guess we'll we'll see what happens.
0: And uh, last, but certainly not least, we have to mention some of the big uh, starts and stops in terms of production that are happening because of COVID. Obviously, we're not going to be uh, giving a cohesive, uh, exhaustive list of everything that's been happening here. But broadly speaking, I have found sort of a contrast between productions that are happening in the States as opposed to productions that are happening in Canada. And some of the shows, especially the CW shows and stuff like that, that are being produced up north in uh, Vancouver, for example, or in Canada, are able to be produced currently despite the COVID regulations, whereas shows that, uh, for example, For Life, which is the ABC drama uh, that is shooting in New York, they had to essentially stop production because of inconsistent COVID test results. And so you sort of see this pattern recurring where some of the shows are happening and some shows are not happening. But I really feel a lot of it comes down to where they are located and uh, sort of the big difference between Canada and America and the way those countries are dealing with COVID.
1: Yeah, I still have a lot of friends living up in Vancouver who work on set and in production and just seeing their Facebook updates and stuff. It seemed like they really <laughs> resumed quite a bit earlier than we did here in the States just because they handled the COVID situation a little bit better. But it's still kind of a scary situation. And we're seeing uh, in instances like, for example, um, the filming of The Batman, which I think was out of Atlanta. Despite all the precautions they took and all the money they have as the studio, the lead actor, Robert Pattinson, still got COVID. So uh, it really doesn't seem like it's it's completely safe to be filming right now. But we're doing it anyway because that's the uh, industry juggernaut that just keeps on moving and wants to keep turning out the content.
0: Well, speaking of Atlanta, there was also news recently that uh, at Tyler Perry Studios, the sitcom Bra was able to shoot 19 episodes. In four days, 19 episodes in four days. So speaking about churning the machine just to get content out there, that's another piece of worrying news is just this trend of let's get as much content as possible in a short amount of time as possible, because right now this is the window where allegedly we are all COVID free. So let's just, you know, shoot, shoot, shoot. I mean, I'm really worried about uh, sort of the, the state of affairs over there in terms of union rules and people being paid, people being able to sleep. I mean, that is pretty worrying.
1: Yeah, how is, I don't even know how that's possible. That kind of boggles my mind. So yeah, I've heard about these kind of systems they have where they will quarantine people together in a hotel or sleeping arrangement or whatever and just have them in their own little pods or bubbles in the same way as, you know, professional sports teams and stuff have been operating, but for shooting. And, uh, you know, just these, so many, hoops to jump through and things to do. And I I definitely agree with you that I worry that it's going to perhaps be unfair to employees who have to stay away from their families in this bubble and go and shoot for X amount of time just to be kind of COVID safe. And even then, as we've seen, it may or may not work.
0: Yeah. I mean, the Atlanta sort of a Tyler Perry bubble indicated that it was going to be 51 quarantine days for 32 days of shoot for four different series. Uh, So you can see that the shooting days actually comprise two thirds of the amount of quarantine days. So you're really investing over three months of your life for this entire project, but they're really trying to make up for the quarantine days in production as opposed to adding quarantine days to the production. So I think that's the bigger red flag potentially is just, oh, we're instead of uh, sort of adding those days, they're uh, leveraging the quarantine days against the production days, which is just a huge uh, issue.
1: Yeah, I certainly hope people are being paid for these quarantine days as
0: well. All right. Well, on that uh, semi-depressing note, I feel like we always end these uh, <laughs> TVR news in the depressing times, but uh, I guess uh, that's 2020 for you. Uh, on that don't forget, as we mentioned at the top of this episode, that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You will get access to our Paper Patreon podcast cheat sheets and uh, new uh, Paper Team mentorship updates. And uh, you can get all of that at paperteam.co slash Patreon. And so so we can keep producing a great show like this one for you every week. All right, thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 191, and as always on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, questions that you want answered on this very podcast, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And uh, don't forget that this Saturday, October 3rd, starting at 6 p.m. Pacific time, we are having a mixer available at pipeteam.co slash online mixer. And in the meantime, what are we doing next week?
1: Well, next week, we're going to be talking to Shannon Houston, who is a writer on Lovecraft Country and also the co-host of the Lovecraft Country radio podcast. uh, That's a companion to the show. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to chat to her about uh, this show that's been
0: uh, on a lot of people's radars. Excellent. And we will see you hopefully this Saturday. Otherwise, we'll see you next Monday. I'll catch you then.